You know you're a surveyor when you can't help but smile at the words bungaroosh and noggin. You're not alone, my friend. Welcome to the Surveyor Hub with me, Marion Ellis. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Suki Gill, Head of Investigations at RICS. So welcome to the podcast today, Suki Gill from RICS. Hello, Suki. Hello. How are you? You're, I'm good, thank you. Now, you're Head of uh, Investigations at RICS, which sounds incredibly serious and important. <laughs> But we've just been having a nice chat about the colour of my uh, my wallpaper in the background and you seem like a really nice person. So I'm hoping we're going to have a really good conversation today. Could you explain to people who don't know so much about the RICS or in particular investigations, what your role is? What, what do you do at RICS? So I'm responsible for heading up the investigations function. So my team deals with and investigates concerns which are raised with us about our regulated members and firms. And so if you think about our regulated members, there's 134,000 regulated members. And within that, you're talking regulated members as an MRICS, FRICS, associate members, also student members. So all of that, so they're all included, as well as we've got over 10,000 firms, regulated firms. But I've got to say, we only deal with a very small proportion of the whole profession. So, you know, we only deal with a very small number. So I'm responsible for managing that function. And I think that's important to put into context. I've run a complaints and claims department for, for many years, many years ago. And although it was a busy department, we had lots of people to deal with lots of things. In context, it was just a couple of percent, single figures, two, one, two, three percent maybe of everything that we were dealing with yeah. in comparison to the number of jobs and things. And so we do have to really have to put these things in in context. I can't help but, th- but think, and this is where Marion, don't ask stupid questions. When people talk about about investigations, I imagined you as some kind of private detective (laughs) (laughs) who's into crime novels and working out what's what. Uh, Do you like crime novels? I I do. I think I'm naturally nosy. And I think as an investigator, you have to be. (laughs) You've got to have that sort of uh, nosy sort of like, yeah, personality. But yeah, no, I do like crime, actually. Yeah, you're right. I do like crime. I think it's about being curious. That's what I found, Mm. you know, naturally curious. And it's not necessarily about problem solving. And I was always asked, you know, how do you fix the problem? And it's right. Well, do you know what? There's rules, there's regulations, there's do's and don'ts, but you're dealing with people. And people aren't problems to fix, but they're people to support to get the right outcome. And if it's not quite right, then we need to change and adapt. And But it's really, it's, it's interesting dealing with people, isn't it? Yeah. And I think it's tricky, isn't it? Because just like you say, you are dealing with people who've got feelings, but our investigations are evidence-based and that's really critical. So we can't just sort of, you know, follow a line where actually a line of inquiry where there is no evidence because that would be unfair to the member. So it is very much evidence-based and making sure that we follow our fair process for everybody involved. So so tell me a bit more about that then. So how does a, a case land on your desk? Yeah. Okay. So if a concern is raised by anyone, so it could be a client, it could be a member, it could be a member reporting themselves, 
The concern is then assessed, it's risk assessed by one of our regulatory support team, and they will assess the concern to see whether or not it meets the threshold for investigation. So they will assess the seriousness of what's been reported, and they may at the initial point actually request further information to decide whether or not the case will be then investigated. And so a lot of the concerns which are received in our ICS are actually closed right at the front door. So last year alone, we had just over two and a half thousand concerns which were reported to us. At any one time, we've we've got just over 300 open investigations. So that just goes to show that a vast majority of our concerns that are raised with us actually don't meet the threshold for investigation because there's no jurisdiction for us to investigate because actually the member might not even be an RICS regulated member. Or it might be a case, for example, where the client actually needs to go through the firm's complaints handling procedure, because that is the first stage. We always ask, you know, you know, have you gone through that, that process? Or it could be an issue which actually it's not for us to, to look at. It actually needs to go to a first tier tribunal, for example. Yeah. So, so there's a couple of things there. I called it a case. You called it a concern. Yeah. And I remember when I dealt with complaints and claims was that, you know, you would have an inquiry, you know, or if it was a valuation, a post-valuation query, PVQ, you know, inquiry, a PVQ, a complaint, a claim, at what point does it become one or or the other? And the problem with using language like it's a complaint, it's almost sort of prejudice in a way that there is a problem at the start. So it's interesting that you call it a concern because it's just something that somebody's raised and it's just being looked at. And and you call it assess. I used to call it triage. But you're right. That first point is really crucial. And you've got to, I mean, I remember sort of developing a, you know, like a little framework um, with, with my team, fabulous team you know, looking at, well, what the circumstances, does it sort of tick the boxes? And that helps actually get rid of a lot. There's a lot of information in that though. So you said, you know, two and a half thousand concerns come in, mm. you know, 300 cases are open at any any one time. So that's still hundreds of people who've contacted you. It's really useful to know, I think, for, for members and for our ICS as to what are they contacting about? How can you prevent that? Because if you prevent them coming to you, not in a stop them coming to you, but prevent them coming to you when they don't need to, obviously it saves time, money and resource. And that's the same for any, you know, any of the surveying firms out there, because there are usually things that people can do. So, you know, like you said, make it clear, you go through the complaints procedure before. And so it's things like updating your website to make sure... And I'm talking to surveyor firms here now, making sure that people know what to do. And that saves all the all the time wasting. But a lot of information can come through. And particularly for customers, and, and, and you mentioned, is it the majority of the public? You know, those cases are the concerns that come through. Are they mainly from the public or are they from surveyors? There's a real mix, actually. In the main, I would say they're clients. And I think one of the things we would want firms to do and this would prevent, I would say, concerns being raised with our RCS, is making sure, do firms actually share with their clients their their, their complaints handling procedure? Yeah. Simple. And quite often they don't, you know? They, um, they don't, know, and, and often they're not very good. I mean, I've, I've shared some some in the past in the survey hub and it's something that I'll perhaps sort of uh, look at again. But there's, um, hmm, let me even do a masterclass. 
hold that thought. But, you know, what should a complaints procedure look like? How do you integrate it into your business? Be upfront and put it on the website so people know. And it's all, and use it actually as a tool in your business because it's all about know, like, and trust. And if you're being upfront, this is how we deal with concerns and this is what happens. What I don't often see is advice for when clients and consumers can contact RICS. So it'll say, we review it, it gets escalated. Here are your ADR options for alternative dispute. You know, so you've got the TPO, you've got CEDA, you've got whoever you yeah. refer it to. But rarely do they say, and this is how and when you can contact the RICS, my professional membership body. And I don't often see that on a complaints procedure. But you're right, people need to be really upfront. I would even include it and go so far as to include it in the pack of information that you have right at the start. When people are either... In terms of engagement. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. really really include that, you know, or just make it accessible because the more that you're open about, you know, and use it in a positive way, what you're doing is having a dialogue. And what I've found with most firms and lots of areas that I've worked with is if you keep the channels open, you can prevent things escalating because they feel that they can bring their concerns to you at an early stage and you can resolve things. You can either change what you do, change your service or just explain and be helpful and be more supportive rather than it's this thing that you, you know, this procedure that you hand out when things go wrong. So really using it as a tool in your business. So you said it's sort of a mix of people that come to you. Yeah, we we do have employees as well. Employees of, of, you know, working for regulated firms and, and, and members. The police as well, other bodies, other agencies, sharing information with the regulators as well. So we do have sort of joint ongoing investigations where you've got another professional body investigating their regulated member as well as us investigating our members. So, um, yeah, it's a real mix. It's a real mixed bag. And so the concern comes to you from a wide range of, Mm -hmm. of sources. You then do this assessment. So anything can trigger it so long as there's evidence. Yeah. You then do assess that assessment. You then then goes into the pile of, yes, we need to look at this. Mm-hmm. What do you then do? Depending on the nature of the concern that's been reported, we would reach out to the member and we may ask for further information or depending on the seriousness of the of the concern that's been raised. So let's say, for example, we've got the concerns being raised that the uh, member has been, there's a criminal conviction of some kind, which is serious, let's say. Let's say, for example, this is a sexual offence. And so we would use the certificate of conviction and raise formal allegations at that point with the member because we've got the evidence. And so we would write out to the member and ask for an explanation and ask them for their response in relation to what's what the what the conviction is so so is that because it's against RICS member rules to have a criminal conviction yeah well RICS members are required to uphold our rules and standards and professional behavior so if something was serious as as in like a sexual offense that is in, in conflict with what we would expect from our members. So that is a serious case which we would investigate. And I mentioned at the beginning, we do only investigate the most serious cases. So there are other avenues whereby we would perhaps not investigate, but we may actually reach out to the member and provide advice in some of the lower level sort of type of cases. For example, if there's repeat patterns of behavior where we may have received a concern about a member let's say over a six-month period about the same issue, let's say service-related types of concerns, we 
would most likely reach out to the member and provide advice. So to make sure then, you know, depending on the nature of what's been reported, we've got our team of, uh, our new team called Professional Sport and Assurance. And their primary role is to engage with the profession and to bring firms and members back into compliance. So that's a real sort of support mechanism, which is, is quite new to our ICS, actually. And so there, there's different levers that we could pull. So the most serious cases we would investigate, but there are other, there are other ways that we, we can deal with concerns which are raised, which aren't so serious. And I think that's really positive because nobody sets out to do a bad job. Things happen in our businesses and our lives. We might get sloppy. Things happen. But to tar everybody with the same brush of seriousness of going down a investigation route, you know, is is quite heavy handed. So I'm quite encouraged yeah. by that. So what's it called? Sorry, the professional the professional support and assurance team. Yeah, so we'll put we'll put a link to bits like this in the show notes for anybody. Yeah. But that's really helpful because that's a really positive step where people can then. I mean, sometimes people, you know. Firms and surveyors don't want to hear. Yeah, <laughs> they don't want to hear it. But it's yeah. a much more proactive way of preventing definitely getting worse. I mean, historically, the professional sport and assurance team um, used to go out and do audits of firms, so they would look at firms' compliance with client money, for example. I've got an example recently where we've been out to a firm three times over the last five years. The same issues have been picked up in relation to. Just the managing firms' finances isn't actually the strength of the of the sphere, and they hold their hands up. So we went the third time, and it's the same issue. So rather than just slap them with a reprimand and a big fine, what we've said is that we are going to come out and we're going to provide you with support and advice on actually how you can manage your finances properly. And that has been so welcomed by the member. And that's exactly what they wanted. That's exactly what they needed. So um, it's a really different way of actually getting firms and, and actually engagement with the profession as well. I think it's really good news. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, a lot of the work that I do, I talk about surveyors who love what they do, mm. but don't necessarily love running their business. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, we get, we love, you know, talking to customers. We love doing the geeky stuff, look at the plans, the drawing, the inspecting the properties. And sometimes we can get really sidetracked <laughs> by that. But the, the ultimately, well-run businesses are less likely to get complaints and claims. And if they do get them, they're certainly less complex. And so it's yeah. really important that you pay attention to how that how that business is run. And it's a vehicle. And to view it as a vehicle to help you get to where you need to be to earn your income for everything that you want to do in your life, you know, or, or to make a difference to the clients and, and customers that you work with. Your business is a vehicle. And just like... Oh dear, I'm going down a car analogy now, which is a <laughs> which is a worry given I'm not a car person. But given you have, you know, your MOT, your insurance, you check your tire pressure. You know, I can't do that. My husband does that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's done because my husband does it. You know, we de- mm. we delegate tasks. You get the analogy, but you treat it as a vehicle to get you where you need it. Exactly. And if it's well run and well oiled, then it's just less likely to happen. It's as simple as that. You mentioned there, you know, three complaints. Over five years, same thing. Five years is a long time, though. It is a long time, yeah. For things to go wrong, for customers to be dissatisfied. You know, it's it's quite a long time, isn't it? It is. And in this particular scenario, it wasn't so much probably the customers probably wouldn't really know. It's us actually going in and seeing that they're not doing sort of the basic accounting or they should be doing. 
fortunately, there wasn't any, it's no issues about misappropriation. They're just not actually complying with the client money professional statement, which talks about reconciliations over a certain period of time. So I think it goes down back to what you were saying before. They're so engrossed with running their business that actually the, the accounting side it doesn't really sort of come into their daily sort of work, but it should, because actually as an RSS professional, that's what we require you to do because that's that's fundamental. But I think also the, the support we're going to be providing now is sort of like a last chance, you know? So mm-hmm. if, for example, we went out to the firm in another six months time and the same issues arose, we wouldn't be providing a support, another support mechanism that would be, that would be considered very serious. Just, I want to ask you about the sort of the next stage of that. But if I can just jump back to audit. So you mentioned effectively, you know, you get a concern in an audit is a triage assessment is done, and then almost like an audit of the business is done, and that's where obvious things like accounting and things aren't done. You know, are spotted if you like. But when it comes to culture and ethics, how hard is that to establish? Because not everybody, you know, not everyone goes out, sets out to do a bad job. When we talk about fraud and the real bad stuff happening, really in the scheme of things, that is quite minimal. Although, as we record this today, there's been the announcement about the Pandora Papers and all sorts of different stuff, yeah. that, uh, money laundering, all sorts of different stuff that's going on. But in the scheme of things, it's, it's quite small. But when it comes to culture and ethics and the way that people behave and the way that people treat people, does that come through in your concerns that are raised and in your investigation? And if so, how do you how do you pick up to tackle that? I appreciate that's a hard. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a really good question because I think it's really hard to pick that up. That's not to say though that we wouldn't be able to make some sort of assessment or ask questions. So again, it very much depends on what's reported to us. So we can't go on a witch hunt. <laughs> you know, we've got to be fair to our regulated members as well. So if someone was to raise a concern with us about a firm's culture, for example, there's nothing within our rules which says, you know, the culture should be this, the culture should be that, but that we do expect, you know, a standard of behaviour from our members. So if we were to perhaps do a targeted visit within a firm, there's nothing to stop us, ask questions with the regulated member about their values, about their culture, what processes they have in place for dealing with sort of, you know, mistreatment or un- or uh, unreasonable behaviour, for example. And, yeah. And do you then look at, you know, it's like the HR department and if someone's raised a grievance, for example, or if yeah. a non-disclosure agreement's been signed or, or that kind of thing, do you go as far as that? From my experience, we haven't so far, but that's not to say that we wouldn't if a concern was raised along those lines with us. It's a real tricky one because culture and ethics, that's where you get a sense of where things are starting to go wrong of the, you know, you've got the written rules of the game, if you like, over the audit and what you should do. And then there's the unwritten rules of, well, you don't speak to him on a Friday because of whatever. And it's those getting to the heart of those unwritten rules. And and that's where it becomes difficult. And, And for many surveyors, that's when their spidey sense, if you like, starts to trigger of this isn't quite right or this isn't how we do things. And that's when I, you know, I mean, for me, members do reach out to me through the, you know, through this podcast or through the community group, you know, of I've got this situation, what do I do? And in many ways, there's very little I can do, but I can provide a sounding board Mm. of, okay, well, what do, what's your gut instinct telling you? 
of whether this is right or wrong to do. And sometimes that's about culture. Sometimes that's about things like holding on to clients' money when they're not doing refunds or the process with trainees and how they're being treated, about how reports, that they're doing one thing to clients and doing something else behind the scenes. You know, it's all those sorts of spidey sense. Is that the kind of thing that people come to you for? Because I'm, I'm interested to learn a bit more about um, the speaking up policy. Yeah, that, um, that I was about to refer to that. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, there's a speaking up guidance we've got on our website, which actually makes it really clear about how you can report information or concerns to RICS. But it also talks about, you know, everyone's got their own sort of personal moral compass. We all know when something just doesn't feel right, you know, or if something just feels wrong. So what the guidance talks about is if you are in a position where you do see or feel that something is wrong, raise it. Raise it through your internal process. Every firm should have some sort of process for for raising concerns or internal complaints. So what we say is first use that process. But however, if something is very serious, so serious that you think it needs raising with the RICS, then also make a report to RICS as well. And, you know, we do have examples where people do raise information to us anonymously on an anonymous basis and they don't want their personal details to be sort of, um, you know, provided to, to the member. That can be tricky depending on the nature of what's being reported. But that's not to say, though, that we can't, we wouldn't investigate. So let's say, for example, an employee who's not regulated wants to raise a concern about their boss who's an RICS regulated member. Let's say, for example, there's issues about possible misappropriation, you know, for example, rather than us writing out to the member saying we've had a concern raised with us, because that might actually reveal the employee possibly, we can actually do a regulatory review visit. So which is what we call like an audit, where we would review the firm's compliance with the client money professional statement or the handling of client money. And we can do that because obviously within our rules, we can visit a firm at any time. So there are ways in which we can sort of deal with the concern that's been raised without obviously revealing the uh, the individual who's raised the concern. And I think also, you know, it is important to acknowledge that it's quite scary sometimes yeah. and, and you can be quite fearful of working in an environment where you need to call something out and you know it's the right thing to do. But if you do that, there's a set of consequences that then that then then come off that. You know, you could lose yeah. your job. You could, you know, be ostracized. Yeah. But it's about absolutely doing the right thing. So I'm encouraged that there are different mechanisms and, and things that you can look at. But also, I will, I would also say to people is you can speak to Lionheart. Yeah, definitely. You know, so they they can't necessarily get involved in an investigation, I guess, mm. but they can be there as that sounding board for okay well if you think something's wrong let's work it out you know what else is 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 going on for you to try and understand some of it or sometimes just to deal with the stress of it all you mentioned though that you know you could send people out to do an audit I think it's important to note that all audits you do are probably not based on some sneaky suspicion that something's going on but it's just a mechanism for you to think well okay how can we think creatively I guess around trying to see if there is anything yeah anything else yeah and the, the professional support and assurance team which I spoke about before which is a, a new team where the primary focus is very much about engagement with the membership they also do member support visits which are called MSV visits member support visits and they are seen as a support mechanism 
So it's not an audit as in like a, yeah. which will result in investigation, but it's very much about actually looking at what the issues are with the member and providing them with guidance and support before it reaches an investigation. So it's the, it's a, it's the first sort of stage. Yeah. And, um, it, and it's, yeah, and it's really important that all of these things are seen to support, to help get you in the right place. They're yeah. in many ways, yes, they are warning signs, but they're also, it's information for your business, like the indicator light coming on <laughs> randomly. Yeah. It's a sign that sometimes we, you know, we can't ignore, but, but sometimes we just need to take a look. And it's all about positively heading in the right direction. I'd like to ask you then sort of a bit more about how you investigate. So you've done this this triage. You might sort of do the the audit. You'll find out a bit more. What what then happens? I mean, is it just about getting as much evidence as possible? Yeah. So the investigation part in terms of raising allegations with the member, it's very much about making sure that the member is given an opportunity to provide their response. A lot of the cases which we do investigate do end up being closed. So after the investigation, so even if we raised allegations with a member, for example, it could be that upon response from the member, the case may be closed at that, that point in time, or it might be closed with advice to the member. There's a very small proportion of cases which actually go to before a disciplinary panel. So there's various outcomes which could happen as a result of our investigation. So it could be closed, which the majority of them are. It could be closed with advice. It could impose a caution on the member. Also, we could agree a regulatory compliance order, which we call RCO, but yeah, a regulatory compliance order, which is a decision where the member and also RRCS agree that the member has perhaps breached the rules of conduct. So it's an agreement, but also the member agrees to what the outcome should be. So the outcome could be, it could be a fine. It could be us actually providing the member with a member support visit to get them back into compliance. It also could be a condition possibly on the individual's membership license to perhaps prohibit them from dealing with a certain area of work, for example, if the concern was around sort of competence or lack of competence in an area, or it could be referred to a disciplinary panel. But throughout that whole process, I make sure that our investigators engage with the members so they actually are, are kept up to date with the process. Also, we provide them with details of Lionheart should they require some sort of further confidential sort of advice and support. So that's for the member who's being investigated, but what about the member who's reported it or, or the customer or client who, who's reported it? Are there timescales turnaround times or whatever that you work to? Yeah. So we make sure that our investigations are substantively progressed at least every 28 days. And that includes key updates to the individual who's being investigated, as well as the person who's raised the concern. So both individuals are kept up to date through the process. It's a really tricky thing. So you say 28 days, and I understand why that is because I've dealt with claims that have gone on for years. But when you're in the thick of it yeah, and the worry... You know, 28 days. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's just a very, yeah. Time, isn't it? Yeah, we say up to 28 days. We deal with individuals, clients who are vulnerable. We also deal with members who are being investigated who are vulnerable. So it very much depends. I mean, that's the minimum. So there's cases which we deal with where the 28 days is too long. So it's every 10 days or two weeks, depending on the nature of the investigation. And, that, and that's the sense that your team has of trusting their gut instincts. Yeah. Can I ask um, about your your team? What does your team look like? And, and how have they been over over the last, you know, horrible COVID year? Is it a year, two years? Two years, <laughs> probably 18 months you know, or so, yeah. That, that must um, have been really 
really, you know, having run teams, similar teams like that in a way, that's really, must have been really hard for them. It was, I've got to say, I've got, I'm blessed with a very, very strong, resilient team. And I think um, even throughout the whole COVID situation, I mean, yeah, we, you know, I did lose some staff, so I didn't have as many, I didn't have as much resource and capacity across the team. And sort of, you know, quite quickly, we had to make an assessment on cases which we were going to progress, which were the most serious and high risk cases. And which cases actually we may, we, we had to sort of, you know, pause for a short period of time. And I'm happy to say, actually, we are back on track. <laughs> so um, the team is a real mix of individuals, actually. So they're all investigators from background. So they've either worked at other previous sort of regulators with very sort of skills, which sort of, you know, match this role. And uh, yeah, I think um, I've got people who've been in the, in the role who are pretty new. Like any sort of large investigations team, you've got people who are coming in and probation, and then you've got people who are really, really experienced. So a real mix of a uh, real mix of skills. Have any of them left to become surveyors? No. <laughs> <laughs> My the team that I that I had over a number of years, I think I think in turn we had about I think about seven, quite a few yeah. of them women actually, who then went on to be surveyors. And um I'm really proud of that, that I was, you know just a little cog in their in their journey but it's interesting recruiting people to deal with complaints of any nature because you want people who are curious enough have all that customer service you know reassuring safe pair of hands but equal you know and got that sort of moral compass but they they need to be supported it's incredibly stressful you've got to be highly organized mm. highly highly organized and i think you've got to be an excellent communicator and that's not just in orally, but that's in writing. So one of the core skills that we actually do assess on recruitment is people's ability to draft. Mm. So let's face it, that's the core part of your job. So it's the drafting, but then also the decision making. So what we use is a, is a case study, for example, and we ask them to draft a decision of some kind. So we assess them on their drafting ability, but then also how they communicate. So that for me is so much more than, can you tell me about a time when you did this? Yeah. You know? So the proof is in what you do. So and, and I think the other key thing when it when it comes to a role like that is to trust your people. Yeah. You know, and really empower them. Really empower them to make decisions. You know, yes, they've got to have a have a framework. But you know, if it's a just thinking about surveyor compl- you know, complaints now that come in, you know, if someone needs a 50 quid refund, just give them the authority to do it. They can make yeah. that decision. They they get that responsibility. You know, yeah, and a lot of them that work in customer care type roles are, are low paid but they're really important part of your business and definitely and to trust and, and empower them and it's interesting you're saying about the interview I remember my <laughs> years ago my interview for uh when I came off the tools as a surveyor it was an audit role dealing with customer care I think it was it was described and they gave me a scenario and uh you know what would you do and you and you know this is how it happened what would you do differently and I remember saying well, they've done it totally the wrong way around. I'd have said this, I'd have done that. Da, da, da. <laughs> and uh, I got a bit carried away. And I remember sat there, you know, the, the director opposite was just a bit, oh, <laughs> okay. We've been, <laughs> yeah. we've been, might have been doing this a bit a bit wrong. But yeah, yeah, no, really interesting. So you, you said you've got these different types of outcomes yeah. that, that can happen. It's only a few that then go ahead. Can people find out the outcome of cases? Can they find out when a concern has been logged and you've taken it seriously? Can they find out what the outcome was? You know, yes. is that 
transparency is that out there yes it is so if a case goes before a regulated tribunal so if it goes before the disciplinary panel the out the, those decisions are published on our website so the decision will be published however from the point of the referral to disciplinary panel to the point of the disciplinary panel hearing the case may take some time however you know the decision is is, is published so it's all transparent you can see it but if a member you've raised a concern about is referred to a disciplinary panel, the investigator will inform you. So you are informed that actually this is the outcome of the case that's been referred to a disciplinary panel. So you are informed of, of, of that. If, however, the decision is a regulatory compliance order, those terms, we wouldn't necessarily share that with the, the person who's raised the concern because that's a, an agreement between RICS and obviously the member. But we would inform you that, you know, there has been a there has been an outcome and it has been investigated. I guess that leaves those who've raised it, though, feeling a little bit dissatisfied because they've not seen the outcome. You know, but I guess if, if it's an agreement that you'll take action... Or advice, you know, we would say we've actually spoken yeah. to the member and we've actually provided them with, with written advice, for example, about... And I suppose that's your job all the way through. It's not just to investigate, but it's also to reassure the member or the customer or the client that you are taking this seriously exactly. and you've done what needs to happen. But sometimes it might be unfair to, you know, say it was a member support visit or whatever, for somebody who's trying to do good and wants to do better for them to be you know, sort of out there yeah. and named as uh, as a problem as we yeah. turn it into a positive. So I guess it's your job to work really hard <laughs> to make people and feel to reassure, reassured. And trust, trust that you're doing that. And I hope just by way of this conversation, we will get a bit more of an insight to what you, yeah, you know, what you do and, and and how it how it all works. So how does a, a disciplinary panel work? So you said it takes some time. Mm-hmm. As I understand it, that's because disciplinary panels, are they volunteer members or specialist members that look at that? And it just takes a lot of organising to put a case together. Yeah. So a disciplinary panel, a case is, well, if a case is referred to a disciplinary panel, it is then given to a lawyer who will then get in touch with the member and explain the the, the process. So uh, the case is then referred to a lawyer who will then progress the case before this premier panel um, so, so we're talking about this is really proper serious now this is serious these are the really small percentage of cases which actually end up going to for this premier panel so a member then will be asked to make further representations and be provided with the evidence that we are going to be relying on before this premier panel but I just want to reassure you, the member is engaged throughout the whole process. So, you know, the lawyer isn't working in the background, sort of preparing the case. The, the, you know, the member is sort of, you know, engaged throughout. throughout. So, the, so, so sorry. So if that's the case, then is that at that point, that's where a, a member should get their own legal advice? That's entirely up to them. So we have members who do instruct lawyers. We also have members who actually represent themselves. And so it very much depends on the nature of the concern, I think, that's being put before all the charges which are being put before the member. But there's a, there's a real mix. And so, yeah, it's entirely, we don't, we wouldn't advise, we wouldn't say that, but it's actually entirely down to the individual. So why, so why is a lawyer used to put the case together in front of the disciplinary panel? Is that just so that it's really clear and it totally complies with all the RICS regulations? Yeah, because, yeah, we're putting charges and also it's serious. That role is something which we we, we have a, a lawyer to undertake. 
in terms of, you know, that that's the function. So a lawyer uh, then would prepare the case, the charges. And some cases actually during COVID, quite a lot of our cases have been all via sort of, you know, electronic. So they used to be held in Birmingham in our sort of headquarters there. But technology over the last 18 months has proven that actually we can use, you know, teams and things so um during covid we've um we, yeah we've been doing a lot of our hearings like this which is which has been really good so i'm thinking for a surveyor who's made a mistake and i guess when it rightly or wrongly intentionally or not you then go to this disciplinary panel but to see the whites of someone's eyes in a room that must be quite scary <laughs> yeah it is and i've got to say also there are some cases where if the facts aren't disputed so let's say we're talking about criminal let's say conviction case they can be considered on just the papers alone. So the member doesn't actually have to attend or attend a, attend a meeting. So they don't, it very much depends on, on the facts of the, of, of the case. So the tribunal, though, I think it's important that it's completely independent. It's an independent tribunal. And the members which make up a tribunal, they're not employees of RICS. So they are completely independent. So in total, the regulated tribunal, there's 27 people in total. There's always a three-member panel. So it's always three members. There's a non-member and there's always two, the, the, yeah, there's always one non-member and two um, members. And one person is then the chair. So the chair can be the uh, RICS qualified or, or non-member as well. And and what how what's the format like then? So it's, is it, here's the facts. What do you say? Is it hands up? Do you want to put your case across? Yeah, there's always Actually. a legal advisor as well. So somebody who's neutral. So they are basically there to assist and provide advice to the tribunal based on rules to make sure they're obviously following process as well. So the member then will be asked to present their case and our regulatory lawyer, our lawyer, will present their case. Sounds quite terrifying. But yeah, <laughs> <To be honest. laughs> probably, yeah, but I, I suppose, um, like I said, it's a very small proportion based on the numbers of cases. Like, so what two what and kind of percentage thousand. then is that? I need, to, I need to come back to you on that. Yeah. And what kind of, you know, if it's a small number of cases, what kind of cases are there? So criminal convictions, straightforward ones. Criminal convictions, issues relating to someone's honesty, integrity, misappropriation of funds. It could be where you're ripping clients off. I'm just trying to think of a case in my head at the moment. Yeah. Where, you know, you've had a member who's used their position um, and ripped off vulnerable individuals by thousands and thousands of pounds. So, you know, real serious end of the scale sort of type of cases. Members who've been charged with some sexual offence, for example, and where, you know, they've been expelled from membership. So, I mean, that is the most draconian step that we mm. would take is, is, is expulsion. And, you know, those decisions aren't taken lightly, but they do only happen, like I said, in a very small number of Is there an cases. appeal process then? Yes, there is. You can appeal decisions as well and that would go before then the tribunal different members of the tribunal then would be made up so it wouldn't be the the same members who heard the the first decision but I think it's worthwhile noting we don't always get the outcome that we think we're going to get at the tribunal so if we're sending a case to tribunal we don't have a hundred percent achievement that we've actually had a tribunal outcome and actually I think that shows that it is completely independent so some cases don't actually have a, a disciplinary outcome they go to panel but I'll say we lose <laughs> and it goes in the members' favour. How does it get to that, that point though? Because through your investigation, surely you'll be getting information back or is it just that sometimes surveyors don't engage 
Yeah, don't engage. They bury their head in the sand and they come on the 11th hour. They will appear in person and present a very good case. And so, yeah, throughout the whole process, which is why I would say to members, please engage with the process because sometimes it doesn't even have to get that far. Mm. It doesn't have to get as far as a, a disciplinary panel. And some cases they end up going for a disciplinary panel because the member just hasn't cooperated, hasn't engaged. So we've only got the evidence, but actually they haven't been able to provide their sort of their, their story. And it's only until the end that they do. So yeah, sometimes you just don't know how it's going to go. So that's been really useful to talk through today, Suki. Thank you. I, I just want to finish on some of the things that surveyors can do if they find themselves in this situation. So at the start, you mentioned make sure you have a complaints procedure and that you follow it and that you issue it to clients. You've mentioned engage with the process. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uncomfortable for all, but the more that you engage and recognise that you as the uh, investigator or your team are there to help and to, yeah. to support as much as anything, then that helps. What Anything else that you'd add that they could do? Walk in the shoes of your client, you know, put yourself in their shoes and have you dealt with their complaint to the best of your ability? So if RRCS was to knock on your door and say, how did you deal with it? How did you deal with that complaint? Are you 100% satisfied that you dealt with it in the best way that you possibly could? So ask yourself that. I know it sounds really simple, you know? Well, but- yeah, it's music to my ears though, because <laughs> I'm I'm all about customer experience. But it's yeah. a really hard ask, I think, sometimes. And you have to work at it. And that's why things like customer journey planning is so important by actually making sure you speak to your customers. And a lot of surveyors don't, you know, it's all done by email. It's all, you know, it's in the terms. There's very little engagement and talking with people human human contact yeah it's it's absolutely that but I also think I'm I'm on the residential side there are a lot of surveyors out there who cannot afford to buy their first home they've not been through the process of that so they've never had their own survey they've not had to use it as a tool they've not had to you know have a survey and then you know 18 months later, discover a problem and what that means for them and their family as they as they live in it. There are surveyors who haven't moved house in many, many years. And so whilst they're, you know, might concentrate on the, you know, the, the defect side of things and, you know, running a business side of things, they actually have little engagement of what it's really like right now in the current market to know what it feels like. And so... It's a big ask, but you know, you just go and find out and you ask your clients and you just notice and you do what you can to support them. And it's a balance of being, I think, empathetic as to what's going on, as opposed to sympathy and being quite practical. And you can shift your business around that. And that's why, you know, I'm pleased that RISS is is doing more on the home survey standard and customer engagement. And and I'm starting to see that a bit more. That's a a lot of what I, I talk about anyway. But it, it's a big ask, but knowing it's a big ask, it's your business, it's what you do. You're in the business of helping people with their homes, helping people with their buildings, mm-hmm. not necessarily just the defect and the construction side of surveyors. Yeah, agree. Good. good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Suki, it's been really good to talk to you today. Oh, thank Thanks you so much for your time. No, thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show today. I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find the show notes and links to any guests and resources we've mentioned today on the website, lovesurveying.com. 
And don't forget to show your support by buying me a coffee or you can rate, review and follow the podcast on your usual podcast platform. It really does make a difference and helps spread the word and reach a wider audience of surveyors who just love what they do. See you next time.